Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live. On WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert featured two dazzling young people from right here in the Capital Region. They're the Parnas sisters, Madeline and Cicely, uh, both from Steventown, New York, in the foothills of the Berkshires. Uh, they're the granddaughters of the legendary American cellist Leslie Parnas, and the girls have been uh, on the scene here locally for quite some time and have really broken out in the last couple of years and have played a great deal in New York City and around the country, most notably with another local phenomenon, Peter Serkin. They've uh, put together a wonderful trio and have performed both at the College of St. Rose, where they did a dazzling recital, and also down in New York City. So we were delighted to welcome the Parnas Girls. The orchestra and I had played with them once before on the opening of that beautiful new mastery center at the College of St. Rose, uh, but we'd never had them on our subscription concert. So in deciding what to play on this basically chamber orchestra-sized concert, we really couldn't quite accommodate the Brahms double, which I guess is the most famous piece for violin, cello, and orchestra. So we looked at some more, somewhat more obscure repertoire uh, and settled on two pieces. First, a very beautiful sort of French salon piece by the very prolific composer Camille Saint-Saëns, and then another work by uh, Antonio Vivaldi, one of his many concerti. Uh, This is a double concerto for violin, cello, and orchestra. I was kind of struck by the dearth of pieces, of really first-rank pieces, that uh, feature violin and cello together as soloists. Once you're past the Brahms, there are a few wonderful contemporary pieces, but not too much from the, the larger standard repertoire. Anyway, as to the Saint-Saëns, Saint-Saëns, as you probably remember, lived a very long life. He was born in 1835 and lived until 1921. And uh, not only was very prolific, but was an incredibly accomplished composer and uh, just a brilliant musician and human being, uh, writing extensively on all sorts of subjects and also composing works in all manners of styles and uh, as well for all sorts of different kinds of instruments. In fact, whenever I listen to music on the radio, and I can't quite tell what the piece is, but it sounds really good, invariably it turns out to be a Saint-Saëns piece. This happens to be a a little double concerto he wrote uh, in 1910. It was for a a concert in England and uh, by a famous cellist named Holman, uh, who played the double along with the legendary violinist Eugene Isai. The work is uh, in one movement, but very rhapsodic in lots of different sections and very perfumed and elegant music, kind of style that these young ladies do extremely well. If, if you've never seen them in concert, they're very young ladies. Uh, Cicely, the cellist, is only 17 years old, and her big sister Madeline's only a couple of years older than that. They're currently students at the College of St. Rose in the music industry program and are heading off to Indiana University in September to study with Jamie Laredo and Sharon Robinson. They They currently study with Peter Wiley, the cellist uh, Cicely studies with Peter Wiley, and Madeline, the violinist, studies with Jamie Buswell at the New England Conservatory, Peter Wiley at Bard College. They're lovely young ladies. They're beautiful to look at. They 
present extremely well, and they're they're very glamorous and very well dressed, I might add, and have beautiful posture. But also, far more importantly, they play beautifully and play beautifully together. So it was great fun to have them, and uh, this is the kind of piece that they just play so elegantly because it it calls on all the elegance that they have in their arsenal. The piece, as I said, was written for two great virtuosi, and there was a whole story attached to it about the cello being the muse and looking to his poet, the violin for inspiration. It turns out that on further research that Saint-Saëns actually didn't have this program in mind. It was his publisher later who attached the program to it and said it was based on a famous poem of the time. In fact, Saint-Saëns' piece was pure music, uh, just a wonderful dialogue between the somewhat more dramatic cello and the somewhat more lyrical violin, all, as I said, in one beautiful movement. So here it is, a double concerto for violin and cello by the French composer Camille Saint-Saëns from late in his career, 1910. It's Muse and Poet for Violin, Cello, and Orchestra. The soloists are violinist Madeleine Parnas and cellist Cicely Parnas. They're accompanied by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes Podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Sasson's little double concerto, Muse and Poet, uh, featuring violinist Madeleine Parnas, cellist Cicely Parnas, and the Albany Symphony. Next on the program was another charming little concerto, again, a double concerto for violin, cello, and orchestra, this time by the great Baroque composer Antonio Vivaldi. It's hard to know exactly when or for what forces uh, Vivaldi wrote this concerto. You know, he wrote a great number of concerti, double concerti as well as solo concerti, and he wrote most of them, actually, for the the young ladies at the school at which he taught for many years in Venice. He taught at a school for young women, and so in a way it's kind of lovely to have these two radiant young ladies playing his uh, double concerto. It sort of reminded me as we were performing it of what it must have been like to go to concerts at this lovely school where uh, Vivaldi conducted this all-girl orchestra with all-girl soloists most of the time. So here it is. It's a a typical Vivaldi concerto, about 10 or 11 minutes in length, uh, fast movement, slow movement, and then a really rollicking finale. Beautiful ways, as always with Vivaldi, in which the instruments interact. The second movement, the slow movement, is a beautiful lyrical, really just a a chamber piece, almost like a trio concerto, but I guess you'd have to say a quartet concerto for uh, the two solo instruments plus the harpsichord, played beautifully by Greg Hayes, and the cello continuo played by our brilliant principal cellist, Susan Libby. So here now, Vivaldi's Concerto in B-flat major for violin, cello, strings, and harpsichord, played by the Parnas Sisters with the Albany Symphony and me, David Allen Miller, conducting. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. The final work on our program was one of my absolute favorite symphonies. You know, there's always that discussion about the Beethoven symphonies, that they seem to really vary from piece to piece, or there's incredible contrast in that Beethoven seemed to like to follow a really big dramatic utterance with a much more modest type of piece. So when you think of pairs of symphonies, the third symphony, that mighty breakthrough work, is followed by the rather charming and and much lighter in style and feel fourth symphony. The fifth symphony and the sixth symphony, which were written roughly the same time, are very much contrasting works. Again, the fifth symphony in that dark C minor key, followed by the very pastoral and beautiful sixth symphony, the so-called pastoral. And then the seventh and eighth symphony, again written within the span of a couple of months. The seventh, a big 
dramatic utterance, followed by the eighth, a much shorter, lighter in feel kind of a piece. And then, of course, the ninth symphony, this monumental work standing alone at the end of Beethoven's output. Well, Beethoven was often rather miffed at the fact that the Eighth Symphony was often dismissed when compared to the Seventh Symphony. In fact, there's a famous story of someone saying to him, why is it that the Seventh Symphony is so much more popular than your Eighth Symphony? To which he retorted angrily, because the Eighth Symphony is so much better. So uh, Beethoven really uh, had a soft spot in his heart for this work. It's obviously a very mature work from the middle period, the late middle period of his career, from 1812. He wrote both these symphonies in 1812, and they were premiered in 1814. Interestingly, in February, at the same time we were playing this very concert, in fact, we played uh, Beethoven's Eighth in the Berkshires on February 27th, which is exactly the uh, 196th birthday of the piece anniversary of the premiere of the piece. So that was very exciting. The work is rather lighter in feel than than the Seventh Symphony. It's one of Beethoven's shortest symphonies. I think it's his second shortest, the first symphony being the shortest. It lasts about 26, 27 minutes, depending on whether one observes Beethoven's metronome marks, something I always like to try to do. I find them extremely bracing and exciting. And when one plays Beethoven at his own indicated speeds, at his own indicated metronome markings, they sound, I always find, much closer in style to Mozart and Haydn, to the two great figures of of the period in which Beethoven came of age, both of whom Beethoven often looked to for inspiration. Haydn, of course, taught Beethoven for a, a period of time when he was a young man. So a very concise, very succinct, very compact work uh, loaded with interesting harmonic material. There's a funny aspect to the, the second movement, which normally, of course, would be a slow movement. In the case of this symphony, Beethoven actually uh, decided not to write a slow movement. He wrote a, a very special kind of movement. Uh, Beethoven was very close to a man named Mr. Mezel, who was essentially the inventor of the modern-day metronome. And uh, Beethoven was in touch with Mezel as he was inventing this thing. Uh, it was originally called the Musical Chronometer, and Beethoven was quite charmed by it, and uh, ha- had, before starting work on the piece, written a little vocal canon when, uh, that was performed sort of impromptu when he saw his his friend Mezel uh, at a party, and it had no words to it. It simply went, ta-ta-ta. Sort of to, to, to imitate the sound of this musical chronometer. And so Beethoven, when it came time to write the second movement of his Eighth Symphony, came upon the, sh- the rather charming idea of making a little sort of clock-like musical chronometer piece out of this little thing he'd written, a sort of homage to Maelzel. So the second movement of the Eighth Symphony is really not a slow movement. I suppose you could call it a slower movement, but it's not really a slow movement. And this, of course, caused audience members and performers in Beethoven's time a great deal of of angst because they knew people really wanted a deep, heartfelt slow movement in their symphonies. And so a terrible tradition got going in which uh, orchestras would substitute in the uh, slow movement, the famous uh, funeral march of the Seventh Symphony in an entirely incorrect key. Uh, That symphony, of course, is in A major. This one's in F major. Uh, They just kind of insert the uh, Seventh Symphony slow movement in place of the Eighth Symphony not-so-slow movement, and I guess audiences were happy with that. Fortunately, we don't, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> we think that the piece should be of a piece, and that it certainly is of a piece. So um, the work, of course, is in four movements. The first movement, a very dramatic and, and exciting movement in three, but in a very fast three. Yum, and really has more of a one feeling, so that each bar, one, two, three, one, two, three, one. I found now that conducting it in one instead of one, two, three, one, two, three, it actually makes the piece flow and float a lot more easily than it does when one conducts it in a sort of heavier feeling three. The second movement, of course, the unslow movement, this homage to the metronome and to its 
its creator, Mr. Maelzel. The third movement uh, is actually a minuet, which for Beethoven in his symphonies is quite unusual. You probably remember that Beethoven sort of pioneered this form called the, the scherzo, scherzo being the Italian word for joke. And these scherzos not particularly being joke pieces, but being extremely fast and kind of demonic uh, dance movements. So no relationship to the minuets that Haydn and Mozart had written as the third movements of their symphonies, really much more ab- pieces filled with much greater abandon and wildness. But in this piece, I actually think probably because the second movement was not so slow, Beethoven opted for a not-so-fast third movement to give a certain balance to it. So he actually turns back to the form of the minuet, a somewhat more stately dance than those crazy scherzos. So third movement is a tempo di minuetto. And the last movement, in a way the most daring of all the movements of the, of the piece, is this rather extensive, very, very fast movement, allegro vivace, super fast, uh, and actually one of the most daunting string pieces for uh, orchestras to play. They're these incredibly fast triplets that start in the very first bar. There's this it's a very fast sort of thing, and the, the second violins and the violas have to continue these streams of very fast triplets through much of the movement, and it's uh, very daunting, so it actually limits the tempo one can go in that Beethoven's indicated Metro Mark is kind of at the absolute fastest point that, that a string orchestra could go, string section could go with this. And so we conductors find that we're forever pushing the orchestra to go at an ever faster tempo in this movement. What's quite remarkable about this this last movement is that it's in a typical sonata form, exposition, development, recapitulation, which most of Beethoven's first and many of his last movements are in. But then you reach what would be the coda, the little end bit that usually is a very short thing. And Beethoven essentially recapitulates the whole piece again. So he builds this gigantic tale to the whole symphony, kind of throwing all the weight of the piece. Each of the first three movements had been rather you know, short and concise, throwing all the weight into the fourth movement. It's a very teleological idea of this, this idea of the ending being extremely strong and, and, and big. Beethoven loved to write really daring and, and extensive finales. A lot of other later composers had a lot of trouble with the finales. I, I think often of, of Dvorak, who wrestled with how to make his finales strong enough, his last movements as strong as his first movements, and was always trying to find different ways to do that. Beethoven seems to have no problem creating sort, sort of manufacturing frenzied energy to send everybody home uh, feeling extremely excited and uh, and as if they had had some phenomenal experience. So this last movement is an unbelievably extensive form, but it doesn't feel that big because it goes by so fast. So here now, the last work on our program, Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 8 in F major, Opus 93. Uh, it's performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes Podcast. Only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony, and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live on WMHT-FM, your classical companion.